Hello and welcome to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all the masterpieces and trash the pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And this is a bonus episode, you lucky, lucky people. Yes, uh, a little, well, not a one-off, but... No, no very, not, not a one-off, um, but a, a very much a new regular thing. Well, as regular as uh, the years decide to give us Friday the 13th. It's going to be well spread out. Yes. <laughs> Um, so basically, uh, as we said on our last episode when we covered Demon Wind, uh, we will be covering each film from the Friday the 13th franchise for as long as it takes us every time that there's a Friday the 13th. Um, yes, yeah, so starting today with the iconic slasher film Friday the 13th. The one that started it all. From 1980. The Razzie-nominated film for Worst Picture and Worst Supporting Actress. Yes, it was Razzie-nominated. That's baffling. Bit harsh. It's very baffling because it's in no way a bad film. This is the year that The Shining was nominated. Yeah, I mean the same year that Can't Stop the Music was nominated. How on earth can you put Can't Stop the Music, Friday the 13th and The Shining and Dress to Kill in the same category? And Xanadu. Well, I mean, yeah. (laughs) We know how that could be connected to Can't Stop the Music. Um, But yeah, this was released in 1980, uh, directed by Sean S. Cunningham, who uh, was known for directing some softcore porn prior to this. Yeah, and his uh, involvement in Last House on the Left. Yes, he was producer. He was good friends with Wes Craven. Yeah. He made this on a $550,000 budget, and writer to Victor Miller... Uh, admitted that he was riding off the success of Halloween. What a shock. Yeah. Yeah. I think Halloween started the slasher craze. Yeah. It, it's a difficult one. In terms of slasher films, the influences are, are far and wide. Um, and there's a case that could be made for any of those earlier films, like Black Christmas, um, Halloween... Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Even Psycho. Even going even earlier with Psycho and Peeping Tom. Um, so it, it, the case could be made for any of these films starting the slasher craze. Uh, there's the influence of the giallos in uh, Italy. The influence of murder mystery novels from Agatha Christie. Um, yeah, it's it's far and wide, the, the influences. For me, this is like if Halloween was a giallo. Yeah. And, obviously, there's a lot of Black Christmas in it as well, but Black Christmas is a lot like a giallo as well. Yeah. For, for yeah, me... Absolutely. I think Psycho started it all. I think Psycho was the the first slasher film. But then, so it kind of goes in miles. You've got Psycho, and then obviously, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Black Christmas came out the same year. But Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a lot more successful, I think, um, a lot more well known. Yeah, I think so. Say. Yeah, um, which is a shame because I think Black Christmas is highly influential. Massive. I, I think it's that's a massive milestone in slasher films. Yeah, hugely. And hugely. then obviously Halloween, because that showed you that you know obviously it gave the killer a mask, um, which I mean. Leatherface isn't really a mask, it's a face that he's wearing. Um, but it gave the killer a mask. Yeah, Leatherface wasn't trying to really hide anything. No, no. It, it gave the killer a mask and it was made on a low budget and it made its money back. Well, more than made its money back. Mm. 
And then, obviously, I think Friday the 13th is a very important film in the horror genre. I do think it's a milestone in slasher films because even though the prior mentioned films, they all did start a slasher genre, this film started a new craze in slasher films. It started the whole gory slasher films. Because all the films you just mentioned, you don't see any blood. No, I, I do. I would like to mention one film which I think was a huge influence uh, that we haven't mentioned yet is Mario Bava's Bay of Blood. Yeah, no, or, I haven't seen that Twitch yet. Twitch of the Deaf Nerve. Um, that's very much a gory Agatha Christie story of um, a group of people going to a, I think it's a mansion, um, to read the, the will of uh, a family member. And they're all killed off one by one. Um, in pretty gory ways, actually. Um, uh, one of the kills, I believe, is um, copied in Friday the 13th Part 2. Okay. Uh, the one where the spear goes through the two people making it. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. If I remember correctly, I haven't seen Bay of Blood in many, many years. Um, I, I do believe that that kill from Friday the 13th Part 2 is taken from another film. I do believe it's Bay of Blood. Oh, that's interesting. Please correct me I if did, I'm wrong. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, so there's that influence of yeah. the Italian films. But then another Absolutely. thing that this spawned was the campfire slasher craze. Yes. Uh, which was imitated in the likes of uh, Madman, um, Don't Go in the Woods Alone, uh, Countless, camp. Sleepaway Camp, Just Before Dawn. The Burning. Yeah. Oh, very much The Burning. Yeah. Um, yeah, so as soon as this was released, everybody got on making slasher films that were gory and set in, you know, summer camps. Yeah, and wooded areas. Yeah. And forests and... And, and, and yeah, I mean, you can see why. It's an effective film. It, it really is. I mean, a lot of it... It's, do you know what? It's not a perfect film. No. It's not even the best in the franchise. It's not even the second best in the franchise. It's not, actually. <laughs> but it really is still effective. It is still a great horror film. Um... But yeah, just a, a few few facts about it. Uh, it was filmed at Camp Nobi Bosco. Nobi Bosco? Nobi Bosco. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. In New Jersey. And everything that you see in the film is already there, apart from the bathroom. That's the only thing they built. Um, it's obviously a franchise that's famous for Jason Voorhees. Now, I first watched this when I was roughly about 11. Mm. Really early age, when I shouldn't have watched it. 11, 12, it scared the life out of me. And uh, and I was familiar with the franchise because the very first, when DVD players first came out, yes, I'm old enough to remember that, um, the very first few DVDs uh, my dad owned was Return of the Living Dead 3, uh, Jason Goes to Hell, and uh, Batman and Batman Returns. Now, Jason goes to hell. The obviously the artwork, the front cover has Jason Voorhees on it, and that's I, you know, I became really curious as to what this film was, and and obviously you know when I first watched this, I was expecting Jason Voorhees to be the killer, um, so I was obviously very confused when uh, when it wasn't, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it, the franchise. You say Friday the Thirteenth to anyone, the first thing they think is Jason Voorhees and the hockey mask. Yeah. He doesn't even get the hockey mask until the third film. No. 
he's not in. You know, he's in this for about five seconds. Yeah, maximum. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's quite interesting how it's just became famous for that one thing when it didn't even start with that. Yeah, well, I'd already watched Scream. Mm. Uh, which gave away the killer. Yes. So I already yeah. knew it was Mrs. Voorhees before I'd even heard of Friday the 13th. I only knew of Friday the 13th because of Scream. And then I obviously went out and sought to find it and watch it. And I think it was on randomly on the TV and I'd recorded it. And yeah, watched it and I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. You know. And through rewatches. It sort of lost a bit of... Yeah, the, the fear factor to it's gone. Yeah. We watched it at um, the Prince Charles Cinema in London as part of a uh, horror all-nighter. And that was when I realised how dated this film was. Yeah. Because there's moments where... Now, I'd normally get pissed off with something like this. But there's moments where the audience was laughing. And then after a while, I was like, oh, I can actually see why they're laughing. Mm. And it, it made sense because... There's so many moments in this film that are so camp and so over the top that they do come across as laughable now and they are horribly dated. But, I mean, for me, that adds to the ride. That adds to why it's so entertaining and so rewatchable because, I mean, it's just enjoyable, you know, for all different reasons. Yeah, it's it's an easy watch and with a lot of slasher films, people can go into, you know, the representation of women... And, you know, violence in cinema and all that. And I don't necessarily think this is the best example of a film to really delve into. It's an interesting one because, obviously, Gene Sesko and Roger Ebert, who obviously film critics, Mm. they criticised it and they called it misogynistic. Um, And Sean Cunningham defended it. Uh, He said that he disagrees and said that the male uh, punishment is equal to the female punishment in this film. Yeah, exactly. I honestly think this film is quite empowering. In a way, because, I mean, you look at it this way. You've got your final girl. Mm. You know, that's a massive part of the film. Mm -hmm. It is equal, the male and female victims. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, you've got two... Three female victims, and I think three male victims. Mm. No, probably there's probably more male victims than there is female. Yeah, then there is, yeah. 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 Um, and then, of course, this would probably be... I might be wrong on this one, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think this is the first slasher film with a female villain. Um, if not, it's a monster first. Yeah. It's... It was something that wasn't popular. I mean, basically. an older female and, and, yeah, as well. Yeah, an elderly female villain. Age. This that blew my mind when I first watched it. it that was the least expected thing. Mm. I mean, no one saw that coming. I, I highly doubt in the cinema in nineteen eighty, anyone would have saw that coming. If I'd watched it in nineteen eighty, and I didn't know any, obviously just a new film. There's not really any red herrings as to who it could be. Yeah. I mean, the only one who had suspicious is the fucking cop. I just know, we were watching the, the making of, um, and they were like, oh, you know, um, there was this suspect and that suspect, and I didn't think anyone was really. No. I, di- I didn't think it was a murder mystery style. Fe- I know you didn't know the killer, but it, it wasn't that sort of murder mystery mm. 
kind of... I, I didn't think there were any red the herrings. The only person that acts a little suspicious is that random cop that comes along his motorbike. Yeah. And he's just acting weird because of the bad acting. I, I suppose <laughs> Steve Christie makes an exit for yeah. quite a while. He does, he? yeah. Um... But I didn't. I didn't really think. No, I, I mean, I, I obviously watched it, expecting it to be Jason Voorhees. Yeah, and, and I, I already you knew, knew who it was. It was. I already yeah. knew it was Mrs. Voorhees, so I was probably just waiting for her to come on screen. She didn't get a good reaction to this. Um, that same review where Gene Sesko um, was slagging it off, he actually published her address, Betsy Palmer's address, for people to write and complain to. I think that's like that's ridiculous. Illegal? Yeah, <laughs> that's probably illegal now. Yeah, it, it's it's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. Um, I don't think we're too familiar with who Betsy Palmer was. Betsy Palmer was obviously in more classier films. Yeah, well, and she hadn't been in anything since the fifties. I think until she's this film had a quite wholesome image. Yeah, um, I I knew her from um, an old game show that I used to watch. Um, and it was oh, it was something like What's My Secret? And she was a, a panellist, a mm. celebrity panellist on there for quite uh, a long time. And I, I think she had quite a wholesome image. So for her to be the killer, um, yeah, I think people was like, ooh. Well, she wasn't a fan of this film until it became successful. She thought the script was trash. <laughs> threw it away. Well, she, uh, <laughs> she only took the role because she needed a new car. Yeah. <laughs> Her car broke down. <laughs> so who was going to play Mrs. Voorhees was... Um, oh, what was her name? Oh, I've totally forgot. Um, Estelle Parsons. Yeah. So Estelle Parsons had been in um, Bonnie and Clyde. She'd won an Oscar for Bonnie and Clyde. That's all I knew her from. So it was meant to be Estelle Parsons, who I don't think had a uh, wholesome image like Betsy Palmer did. No. Estelle Parsons couldn't do it. Because of scheduling issues, Betsy Palmer was asked. A car had just broken down, <laughs> and she, she took the role. Well, Sean Cunningham only made it because he needed a way to pay the bills. Yeah. This was all. This film came from a newspaper article he put out, out of curiosity. Went out an article, an advertisement within a new pa- newspaper, um, with the Friday the Thirteenth title card. Um, saying the scariest film ever made from a producer of Last House on the Left, and he wanted to see how much of a reaction it got. And then when it got a reaction, he made a film around it. Yeah, and I think that kind of shows within the film because um, it's a little hodgepodge. Uh, the elements and the the plot is a little. Uh, a lot of it's taken from other things, and uh, I, I I think it shows within the film that yeah. maybe his heart wasn't 100% in it, he'd uh, sort of, I think he's stated in the past that he's not actually a horror film fan. Um, so maybe he's he just needed a way to make some money because the softcore films weren't really doing well. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I do think it kind of shows that maybe his heart wasn't 100% in the film. The MPAA were unhappy with the gore. Uh, and gave them a warning to keep it down for part two. So if you notice, uh, part two is not, yeah, yeah, not as gory as did. the first film. Yeah. Um, Lou Reed owned a farm next to the campsite. And did he? Yeah, he visited oh, wow. the set, performed for them. Oh, wow. Good old Lou Reed. Yeah. Um, the score, uh, which is notably made, of, made up of strings, 
mm. uh, arrangements, which is was unusual for slasher films because of obviously. Halloween had the synth score. After this, you got a lot of synth scores in these sort of films, but this is entirely made up of uh, a string score, which is fantastic, by the way. Yeah. Um, composed... uh, but then also, I think it's very, very influenced by Psycho. And Jaws. And Jaws. Yeah. 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 It's composed by Harry Manfredini, and uh, the score is only present when the killer is about. Yeah, and it is which a fantastic is a very clever score. way. He does... I, I understand that he's kind of borrowed from Psycho and Jaws, but he's done wonderful work with it. It, it is fantastic. Really does what it needs to do, I think the score does. Yeah. And um, my last fact is that Tom Savini, who looks like he had the time of his life with this film, uh, special effects god who uh, worked on Dawn of the Dead prior to this, um, his young, Betsy Palmer's words, his young Greek male assistant... Uh, played the killer until the end. And then once the killer's killed, he pops up again with his hands. He does, yeah. Those hairy, hairy knuckles. <laughs> and it's very visible. Very like, famous hairy knuckles. <laughs> it's very obvious that the killer is not Betsy Palmer until yeah. uh, until she shows her face. It is, yeah. Um, yeah, so the plot of this film is a group of camp counsellors are stalked and murdered by an unknown assailant. Tom Savini's assistant, whilst trying to reopen a summer camp that was the site of a child's drowning and two murders. And it begins in 1958 with a sing-song by the fire with that one person at every party with an acoustic guitar. Can I ask a question? You've just given the plot yeah. about the child drowning. Yeah. That's the official plot on IMDb. Yeah, when do we learn about the child drowning? The guy who picks Annie up. <laughs> Oh, I see, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, uh, yeah, we get a sing-song by the person with a uh, girl with an acoustic guitar. We do, a little, little hymn for us, yeah. by fire. Um, and then we get a POV shot, and this is where the Black Christmas influence comes in. Um, yeah, Halloween. Yeah. Um, but then also, you know, um, Peeping Tom. Yeah. Every Jello film. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so, what's P- going on about all P-O, the uh, POV shot. We hear. Uh, <sighs> Good impression. Well, no, that was fantastic. Thanks. I thought you'd, uh, thought you'd switch the film off as it popped up again. <laughs> yeah, and that was created by. Did you get the notes down as to how that was created? Um. So when Betsy Palmer says "killer mummy" at the end. He actually just took parts of that diet, so kill and mummy. Yeah. And used that and sort of repeated that sound, that noise. Yeah, and then throughout the franchise, whenever Jason is around, which is strange because it's obviously Pamela in this one, but after this, whenever Jason's around, that's what you hear. Um, it's very good. And on the video game. Very yeah, who'd have thought back in 1980 when this was released, it spawned a video game? Yeah. Yeah. But multiple video games, because obviously you've got NES. Well, the NES, well. yeah, yeah, the NES one. I think the NES one was fairly recently after the... Part after f- part three. After part three, yeah. wasn't it? So only three years after this. Yeah. Yeah, um, so the uh, acoustic girl is giving some fuck me eyes to another counsellor. She is. She's, you know what's on her mind. Yeah, so they head upstairs, um, and they... Engage in some fully clothed sex. Yeah, uh, yeah, and she's reassured that uh, he doesn't know how Marianne kisses, and she's better <laughs> than her or not. 
<laughs> Whoever this Marianne is. Um, oh, Marianne, you bitch. Marianne. <laughs> so, the POV killer comes back. Are they in an attic? They are in an attic. Some form of attic. Yeah. yeah. The POV killer comes back. Clearly doesn't agree with fully clothed sex. And uh, the guy from uh, one of two counsellors like, oh, we, we weren't doing anything. And then uh, he gets killed. Yeah. And we weren't doing anything whilst he's doing his belt up. I know, yeah. We were just messing around. <laughs> and then uh, we get a freeze frame of Acoustic Girl. Oh, she and she's murdered. Freeze frame to death. Very unflattering <laughs> freeze frame. <laughs> it is, actually. This is also a very quotable considering film. It, considering it's a very iconic moment. Yeah. Um, the, the poor girl. It's not very <laughs> flattering at all. Uh-huh. Do you think if uh, if she does conventions, you think she signs that photograph for that freeze frame? Yeah. <laughs> right over the double chin to hide it. Okay. Yeah. This is also a very quotable film. Yeah. Yeah, There's, it is actually. Uh, stuff we notice all the time. Like today, we've noticed more stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, after the unflattering freeze frame, we get a title card smashing through the glass. Yes. The glass of the camera. It's a uh, great image, actually. It is. And then we get a uh, a credit sequence that looks kind of bland. And this kind of is repetitive throughout the rest of the franchise. You get this sort of just white writing on a black screen. But yeah. it's a good chance to showcase how great the score is. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. Um, and then we get present day, Friday, June 13th. And we get our Janet Lee of this film, who is Annie. Annie. A backpacker on her way to Camp Crystal Lake. Uh, we think, you, you know, you're led to believe this is the main girl of the film, because obviously yeah, this is who you first introduced in fairness, to. In she probably gets the most, uh, apart from Alice... Yeah, apart from Alice, she gets the most character she development. She probably gets the most character yeah. development. Uh, I mean, uh, and that's not to say we, we ain't going in-depth in this. Uh, <laughs> you know a lot about her. Watch the film, you'll find out. We watch a little. <laughs> we, we learn a little about her, which is more than we do with anyone else. Yeah, well, she... Walks to, to a gas station, misgenders a dog. She does misgender a dog. <laughs> Cute dog there, and uh, she's like, Hi, girl! Excuse me, hi, boy! So she realises the dog has a dick, and she's like, I'm sorry for assuming your gender. <laughs> and then she asks the dog how far it is to Camp Crystal Lake. She's like, huh, That far, huh? And I think, meanwhile, the dog's just thinking, You just fuck off, please. Yeah. And get the fuck away she's from me. Dog to do well. No. Um, then we get the first play of the only song you'll hear in this film. Absolute banger. Sail Away, Tiny Sparrow. <laughs> By... Who's... Oh, I, do... I think it's Henry Manfredini. Oh, is it? I think it is actually him. Oh, wrote okay. It. I don't know, to be fair, because <laughs> there's a male version and a female version. Yeah. But, and yeah. then and then there's a, a beautifully emotional version at the end of the film as well. <laughs> yeah, I think it's remixed a little, <laughs> isn't it? But yeah, absolute banger. Song about please don't let your heart belong to anyone. To, Sail away to this, uh, to this tiny sparrow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, deep song. YouTube it. Just type in "Sail Away, Tiny Sparrow" Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, we're not going to play it on here, so we don't want to be sued. There. Oh, that's a shame. Um, yeah, but. Um, I've just got here. Yeah, Annie is far too happy. She is over happy. Well, she a is. Counselor. Oh uh, uh, yeah, she's far too excited. Um, you know something's gonna go wrong. She gets a lift from a random guy who's like, "Oh, you're pretty. Hope all the girls there are gonna be as pretty as you." Um, yeah, and she's like, "Oh, I'm not sure." <laughs> she, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if they will. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> they're all dogs <laughs> so I doubt it um, <laughs> Crazy Ralph appears 
Um, he is an elderly man with massive eyebrows. Uh, recurring f- week with the uh, recurring theme within this week's films. Yeah, big eyebrows. Crazy man giving uh, <laughs> yeah out warnings. Guy giving warnings with big eyebrows. eyebrows. <laughs> So, um, get old crazy, Ralph. Yeah, and his acting. <laughs> it's got a deaf curse. Yeah, he tells us it's got a deaf curse. And then he awkwardly exits on his bike. Yeah, and um, well, what did you notice, Chris, with him on his bike? That whenever he exits on a bike, the, the camera lingers for far too long. <laughs> it's a bit like, it's like uh, bye then. We have to watch him leave the screen. <laughs> we, we know what he's doing, he's just going. <laughs> um... <laughs> Yeah, I've just got Crazy Ralph, Death Curse Bike. Um, so then the guy giving Annie a lift um, to Camp Crystal Lake, he starts uh, giving us some exposition about two kids were murdered. Oh, yeah. Giving they us weren't us... doing anything, but they were murdered. Um, and the boy drowned. Yeah, and then the water was tainted. Yeah. So every time that they've this family, the Christie family, um, try and open up this camp... Uh, something goes wrong, either it's a murder or tainted water. Um, and he, he says that Steve Christie uh, will die broke like his parents. Oh, okay. Rude. <laughs> um, but apparently, apparently uh, it's they've died broke. Yeah. <laughs> because and, of this uh, camp. And that's the last to see of this random uh, calf customer until his twin brother plays a cop later on in the film. Does he? It's not actually his twin brother, doesn't he look like him? Not really, I don't think so. Oh, well. I do. Uh, You know which cop I'm on about, not the weird one. The bike cop? Not him. Oh. The one that picks up Steve. Oh, okay, yes. Yes, it does look like him. (laughs) Excuse me. Um, Oh, I thought you meant the bike cop. It's alright, it's okay to be wrong. Uh, (laughs) They can't see that look, so... (laughs) Um, we got some banjo music later replicated in My Bloody Valentine uh, as uh, we're introduced to Kevin Bacon, his girlfriend, and uh, an annoying Dustin Hoffman look like who uh, always thinks about sex, but sometimes he just thinks about kissing girls. Yeah. Uh, so it's, I can't remember, it's Kevin Bacon's Jack, characters. I think. Jack. Jack. Yeah. Marcy and Ned. Yes. Uh, and they're just young kids having a fun time um, yeah. listening to banjo music. Just driving. thinking about kissing women. Just thinking about kissing women. There we are. And then uh, we get to the camp where we're introduced to... Uh, oh, speaking of camp, this outfit. Uh, um, yeah. Awful uh, fashion sense from Steve. Oh, my God. Certainly not a fashion icon. Um, he looks like one of the fucking village people. Yeah, he, he does look like he's on his way to audition but can't stop the music. He, um, he's got a meaty moustache. He has, you know, we know the horror court trash over rules. You know, you've got to have a big meaty moustache. His big old hairy chest out. Yeah. Some uh, denim cut off shorts. And the bandana around and his bandana. neck. Bandana, yeah, around yeah. his neck. Massive glasses on. Yeah. Stupid curly hair that looks awful. Um, <laughs> And then Alice is introduced, working hard, uh, and we soon learn that Steve is a creepy bastard. Very yeah. creepy bastard. Yeah, he's trying to get into Alice's knickers. Yeah, he, he's going through a sketchbook. I don't remember giving him permission to do that. <laughs> um, and uh, he finds a picture of himself, and he's like, is that really what I look like? 
She's like, well, it was last night. And, mm, you're so pretty. So, oh. <laughs> and then he convinces her to stay at the camp for another week. Yeah, she's got some unexplained issues back in yeah. California. What I find weird is, um, and I, I really hope I have got this correct, I thought New Jersey was on the East Coast. And she says that she lives in California, which is on the West Coast. That is a long way to travel. Yeah, our American listeners are going to have to let us know. That is a very, very long way to travel to yeah. work in a camp. Uh-huh. For, and I'm assuming she'd never met this Steve Christie before. No. I think this whole film should have just been called Alice's Very Difficult Life. Because she has a terrible time throughout this film. She does. She, you know, I mean, she's an art student. She's such a bright character. And, you know, she gets sexually harassed by Steve. She's got her troubles back home. She gets, uh, you know, she finds a snake. She obviously gets to be the final girl, finds all her friends dead. It's like, Jesus, give this girl a break. And even there's even one point where she's like, oh, what next? When Ralph jumps out on her. It's like, she's going through a terrible time. Then she gets a screwdriver for the head in the second film. Yeah, wow, spoiler alert. What? We're not covering that till next year, Jesus. <laughs> and Yeah, and even off screen, she got a stalker. Yeah, yeah, Adrian King, she was saying in the making of that uh, she was reluctant to do it. They wanted her for a bigger role for the second film. Um, but she had some issues with a stalker and she was a little wary of doing too much in the second film so she just got him to kill her off straight away yeah and it's a terrifying story like apparently a stalker got really close to her she didn't know it was him uh, apparently at one point he had a gun to her head mm. and it's it's crazy and, I, it was, and it was directly from the series yeah she yeah, said that yeah. It, was, it was a fan uh friday the 13th fan that uh sort of did it all so it but was now, related to this film. But nowadays, she spends her time selling Camp Crystal Lake wine. Yes, check out her wine. Go and check out her wine. Support her business. She's absolutely slain the game. <laughs> you, I, I think she. I haven't even, had a bottle. Should we buy a bottle? We should buy a bottle. We should do a I'm, review. I'll get you some for Valentine's Day. Um, so next we're introduced to what looks like a Dexy's Midnight Runner reject. Uh, Dexter's Midnight Runners, Reject, um, by the name of Bill, played by Harry Crosby, son of Bing Crosby. Yes. So Bing Crosby, real famous old school Hollywood actor and singer. Um, we're getting really close to Christmas now, so you'll probably hear him everywhere. Yeah. He's, um, he's like Michael Bublé, you only really hear of him when Christmas comes up. Well, that's a bit harsh. <laughs> he was in some pretty famous films. It's not just... <laughs> White Christmas that he's famous for. No, Holiday Inn as well. Holiday Inn, Holiday Inn <laughs> where that song came from. No, I, I swear he, he was an Oscar winner for... Um, oh, what film was it that he was in? Uh, Going My Way. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for that <laughs> Bing Crosby trivia. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry for comparing him to Michael Bublé. Yes. There's a big difference. I, You know... I, it wasn't comparing in quality, clearly, because, you know, Michael Bublé's not great. I'm going to shut up about Michael Bublé Yeah, now. don't be arsed. People really like him. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing wrong with uh, liking him. Anyway, um, so everyone's now changed into short shorts. 
Yes, yeah, yeah. It's definitely uh, 1980 now. Yeah, Steve goes for a drive, and that's it. We don't see him for a while. You don't, actually. So I, I, I suppose this is the red herring they're talking about. Yeah. Um, Steve Christie. Leaves. And he's a fucking creep, so, you know, it wouldn't have yeah, been that surprising. I, I wouldn't have been surprised if he was the killer. Killing everyone so he could just have Alice all to himself. Yeah. That would have been a good, mm-hmm. good one, actually. Um, and then we... Um, we see Brenda, who has been introduced. Uh, she kind of gets introduced out of nowhere, actually. Yeah, she's kind of already there. We yeah. Don't, we don't. We don't. I don't think we get any background whatsoever. No, no, she's Brenda. just there. We so don't get anything. She's at the archery range, setting things up, and uh, an arrow shot at her by Tom Savini. He performed that arrow shot. Oh. But actually, we have to believe it's our wonderful prankster Ned. Ned is a piece of shit. He is. Well, he doesn't know this woman. They've only just met. And is this his way of flirting? Or is hitting her with it an arrow? It wouldn't surprise me. He's a she fucking asshole. She get away with it, to be fair. He is the most annoying character in this film. I would have been fuming. And there's always one. In every Friday the 13th film, most Friday the 13th films, there's always that one annoying prankster character that just doesn't come across as funny, just comes across well, as annoying. That, that's a knobhead, really. So Ned's the knobhead in this one. Yeah. The... Uh, tall, gingery one in the second film. Um, Shelley in the third oh, film. God. The dude in the fourth film that's on about being a dead fuck. Yeah, with his computer. You know, his imaginary computer. In... I'm not sure about part five. <laughs> every character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, every character. <laughs> Yeah, so... Um, and so on, you know. And it, it's kind of a slasher film trope as well, yeah. really. Not well, Friday the 13th. we're taken back to Annie, who now gets picked up by our POV killer, who clearly isn't Betsy Palmer driving the car that she's no, in. No, Um And Annie just starts giving her a life story. Well, <laughs> just uh, chatting shit about, oh, I love kids. Yeah. You know, when you have a dream like mine. Just driving like, to, you know, work for my career. Just and going on and on. I'm like, mm-hmm, who the fucking ass... Who the hell Betsy Palmer you? probably had no intention of killing her until she started talking. She's like, do you know what? I've had, a, I've had enough of this. And then... <laughs> so she uh, misses a stop and... Um, well, she misses the turn in for Camp Crystal Lake. Annie jumps out of the car... Yeah, so the car's speeding up, and Annie's getting worried, and she decides to jump out. Yeah, and runs away. Uh, and then a very effective jump scare, because we get a little uh, little chase sequence through the woods, and uh, the POV killer comes out of nowhere, and in one of the most graphic death scenes in this film, she gets a throat slit. Yeah. And it still, to this day, looks amazing. It does look good. The work of Tom Savini. It does, even, I don't know, did we watch in HD? Yeah, yeah, I'm not good Blu-ray. with these things. Really. <laughs> I was Blu-ray HD. Yes, Chris. By oh, default. I didn't uh, oh. ask that. Oh, sorry. It's uh, 1080p. So. Okay. That's the difference between DVD and Blu-ray. I see. Education. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, there's a bit of education okay. for everyone on, on... I know about films. I don't <laughs> know about discs and shit. I'm sorry. Well, there you go. And uh, when watching the cinema as well, that would have been HD. Oh, Okay. So, uh, anyway, <laughs> yes, it looks great. So it still stands up to HD. That it, was the point I was making. Yes, it, it looks great. Um, and, and that's just the genius of Tom Savini. He's just, you, you can't fault him. Everything he's done looks 
incredible. I love practical effects I, because yeah. there's, there's a, a, it's like a magic trick. You know? Well, look how simple that was. And you look at, you know, nowadays... I mean, they are coming back. I'd say we've seen more films this year of practical effects than we have CGI effects. Mm. But then you've got your films with CGI effects and it's like, why? It just... You know, stop being lazy. Just fucking do it the old school way. There's certain things that maybe they can't do. Um, and they they use CGI. And if CGI is done well, mm. you know, then it looks fine. Um, I'm actually struggling to give you an example, though, to be fair. So... When you look at something like Bloodline that was released this year, that's a film with a lot of throat slits. All done practically. Mm. And it's more effective. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, yeah. Because when it looks good, it looks real. Yeah. And you, you can't be scared of a horror film if you can tell what you're watching isn't real. Oh, exactly. You yeah. know, I mean, you know, a film's not real going into it, but if it's obvious that it isn't real, it just takes you out Then it's it. not as gruesome. No. It's not as shocking. So, yeah, that kill happens. Um, and then the uh, POV killer watches uh, everyone else messing around at the lake. And this is when Ned's at his best of being an arsehole. Oh, he's acting the fool again. Yeah. He uh, pretends to drown. Alice throws... Uh, now, we've got a number <laughs> of names for this. It's a round thing that you throw out to save someone when they're drowning. I have it down as a life preserver ring. Yeah, I've got life ring down. Or I think Americans call them lifesavers. Yeah. Because they're what we would call a polo. You know, the minty, round, sweet. Mm-hmm. They call a lifesaver. Okay. Because it's in the shape of one of these. Well, either way, it wasn't saving anyone's life because Alice threw it out like just that? as they got back. As they as they took Ned back to the dock, she threw she threw it out there. It's like, well, it doesn't matter now, Alice, because they're already there. It always cracks me up when I see it. It's she it's she purposely threw there's no purpose to it, anyway. But um so yeah, Ned was messing around. He uh he was trying to get a kiss. Yeah, it does mouth to mouth from oh. poor Brenda. Yeah. Who seems to be the object of his affections. Yeah, Brenda has no interest in him well, whatsoever. Well, he never really does anything about it. No. And then we, after this, we get a uh, massively dramatic sequence with a snake. Um, a snake appears in the cabin when Alice is in there. Um, and then people come in and just start throwing things everywhere. Yeah, and like trying to hit it with a pillow. Yeah. And then... In a really shocking move, um, which is terrible, they actually killed a snake for real. Yeah, yeah. I didn't think that was necessary. I mean, if you're gonna, if you can kill the actors off with practical effects, yeah, I I ain't gonna be crying because you you know killed a, a dummy snake, and if it, if it looked a little fake, I'd rather that than watch some poor snake without its head wriggling around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wasn't a fan of that. And I think the idea was that the killer put the snake in there. Really? I think that's the idea. I thought it was just a random... If it's just a random scene, then that's completely unnecessary. Because earlier on, one character's like, oh, next there'll be a snake in here or something like that to those effects. And then there was a snake there, and I thought, oh, really? Oh, I thought the intention was that uh, Mrs. Voorhees had snuck the snake into there. Oh, maybe. Maybe. Warn them off. It might know, be. I might be wrong. Or something. I just thought it was a random scene. Oh, if it is a random scene, it's completely pointless that Snake had to die for it. 
But yeah, so that kind of lowered the mood a little bit. But uh, then, to lighten the mood, we get some uh, good old cultural appropriation from Ned. He did. He's such a twat. I've just written, he's such a twat. <laughs> yeah. He's dressed as uh, a Native American. So, another village people. Yeah. Yeah, this, this film could have... Did they just borrow all the costumes from the village people? Do you know what? Who's coming up next? <laughs> what character's being introduced next? Next, we get the sketchy cop. We get the cop. <laughs> oh, my God. This is uh, in the same cinematic universe as Can't Stop the Music. So Steve Christie's the builder. <laughs> he just needs a hard hat. Yeah. Ned's the uh, Native American. And then we get a cop. We just wow. need the uh, leather biker dude. Yeah. Unfortunately. Crazy Ralph could do that role. Me. Um, so, yeah, once we find out it's in the Village People Cinematic Universe, uh, we then get a conversation with this really weird cop. He just talks shit. Just really random shit. And then he just, out of nowhere, is like he says he's looking for Crazy Ralph. Um... It, yeah, it's just really weird sequence. Like it's the, just, the writer didn't want it in here, I in the film. Yeah, and I, I don't, for me, I don't get what the purpose was. No. Um, I, I don't get it. Um, a lot of, in a lot of these, a lot of horror films, particularly with teen horror films, it is, the idea is that um, the protectors or the parental roles or guardians are shown to be substandard. Mm. You know, you look at something like A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, Nancy's mother is a raging alcoholic. Yeah. Um, so she's useless. Her dad doesn't believe her. Um, he thinks that she's going insane. So he's unreliable. So she has to do this all herself. This is all on her. Um, maybe that's what they're trying to do, is that this authority figure is a nincompoop, um, a bit of an idiot, not very helpful, um, and then that idea of isolation, I, I don't know, if that's what they were going for, I don't think it was done very well. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it's so weird, and then he says, we ain't gonna stand for no weirdness out here. Yeah, so he just thinks they're all on drugs. And then he drives off? And then that's it. Um, See ya. And then <laughs> they soon find Crazy Ralph. Poor <laughs> yeah, Alice is him. just uh, <laughs> sorting things out in the kitchen. Goes into a uh, storage cupboard. And there he is. He's just standing <laughs> there. there. Just standing there staring at her. And uh, he does his uh, you're all doomed speech. And then he goes outside. His bike is parked up by the tree. Yeah. Don't know how no one saw that. <laughs> Gets on it and uh, rides away. And another real long shot of him. Shot of him. Yeah. Riding away. Like, uh, okay. Uh, that's the point when Alice is like, Jesus Christ, how, can, how bad can this day get? And, uh, she's had enough. Yeah, she's had enough. So um, the generator, they uh, need to get that started up because she's got no light in the kitchen. And uh, we get a really weird line from Brenda. Who says, uh, once the generator starts up, she's like, wow, what have God wout? Yeah, I don't get that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that's... Oh, it sounds like Shakespeare. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and then this is when things start really picking up. 
Uh, Ned starts spying on uh, Kevin Bacon and his girlfriend. He looks like really disappointed, like he's really lonely. And yeah. Jealous of them. And then he starts doing a little weird walking on a whatever that was thing. Yeah, he's just doing stupid Wooden shit. Or something. And then he spots the killer. He does um, a shadowy figure in one yeah. of the cabins. And uh, he follows. He follows them, and uh, then he's killed off screen. Sadly. Yeah, we would have loved to have seen his we death. We see him a little bit later, but we don't. We don't actually get to see Nobed get his just no. nuts. <laughs> uh, Kevin Bacon gives us some uh, facts about the weather. <laughs> yeah, because um, obviously he's a weather expert. <laughs> yeah. And they head inside when a storm starts and uh, start preparing to get it on. Uh, Marcy gets her ass crack out when she's pulling the trousers off. She does a little bit. A bit of a full moon there. And we find out a little later on that uh, Ned is above them on uh, the top bunk uh, of where they're having sex, but they don't see him. Because he's... He, I suppose he would be quite visible. Yeah. Yeah, but no, they don't see him. Because he's not covered up. When we get that pan up the bed to the top bunk... Yeah. It's not like he's under the covers or no. anything. He is quite visible oh. no and no blood drips from the top until quite a while later on yeah it, it's really strange I mean obviously I, I don't, just don't think a lot of thought went into it but yeah um, we get a prolonged sex scene we, we do actually with um, Kevin Bacon gets his ass yeah pinched Marcy's having a grab of his ass um, and uh, yeah that's when we see dead Ned um, Marcy, Marcy goes for a wee uh, tells him, tells Kevin Bacon to keep a space in the bed. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, then we get a very good kill. Um, the blood starts dripping down onto Kevin Bacon. A hand reaches up, very pale hand, reaches up from beneath the bed, uh, grabs Kevin Bacon's head and he gets a, uh, spear through the throat. Yeah, I guess, uh, I, I think it's an arrow head. An arrow? It? Oh, yeah, it is an arrow head. Yeah, yeah. arrow head through the throat. Really good. Uh, I think this is probably the most famous death. Yeah, and again, practical effects, fantastic. Yeah, really. Yeah, but I mean, for nineteen eighty. Oh yeah, looks great. And still no, it it, it looks the, incredible. The story behind the effect as well, when they're under the bed, and they were meant to be pumping the blood through, um, the whatever line came loose, so um, Tom Savini's assistant had to grab it and blow through it. So when the blood spurts a bit higher than they probably intended it to, which still looks great, which looks even, yeah. even better. Um, that's because he had to go underneath and, and blow through the tube to get it to come out because the tube had come loose from the, the pump that he was going to use. Yeah. So that's, that's the kind of thing, you know, these tricks that you only get with practical effects. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a real skill to it, a real magic. Uh, Tom Savini's probably well the dark the, best the dark story behind it is well, the dark story behind it is Tom Savini uh, was uh, he was in a war I believe he was a photographer during yeah. the Vietnam War and uh, he his special effects he he's only satisfied with them when they give him the same feeling he got seeing the sights that he saw during that war mm. and he doesn't sell for anything less, which is insane. 
Uh, and, and that's why I think that's why all of it looks so good because he's always got such a high standard for himself. Yeah, there's a really great documentary um, that was on the old Anchor Bay Hills of Eyes DVD release. Randomly, really, like quite randomly. Called... Was Tom Savini working on Hills of Eyes? No, no. Oh. But the film, it's, uh, I believe it's in a, oh, I believe it's an American Nightmare. And it's a documentary and it goes through um, horror films, particularly of the 1970s. Um, so it, it, it kind of, it touches on uh, Hills of Eyes. Um, I do believe it's called An American Nightmare uh, or American There Nightmares. is a documentary called American Nightmare. Yeah, and it, it goes through and there's a, a section where Tom Savini talks at length about his time during the Vietnam War. It's fantastic. I, I, I hope they've done some sort of release. I think it was on Netflix. I think that's where I saw it. You think? I, have, uh, I think so. It's The American Nightmare. It's by Adam Simon. And, uh, yeah, so it looks quite in-depth into films such as um, Shivers, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, Last House on the Left, um, yeah, really good um, documentary, actually. Where, and Tom Savini does talk quite in-depth about his time during the Vietnam War, during one of the sections, so that's good. And also, if you check that out, also um, check out Crystal Lake Memories as well, because we... I know this episode we've gone on a lot about backstory and the trivia and everything. We've only touched on the surface. This Crystal Lake Memories documentary goes on for... <sighs> Three DVD discs worth. Oh, uh, yeah. It's a quite uh, a length About four or five hours. And it just goes on about every film in the franchise at length. It's fantastic. Can't it's recommend it It's very similar to the Nightmare on Elm Street one, isn't it? What's, yeah. What's Never Sleep Again. Never Sleep Again. But it's a companion to the book, uh, Crystal Lake Memories, which I've got, but I haven't read yet. But, um, yeah, no, definitely check that out. Um, but, yeah, so... In between Kevin Bacon getting it on with Marcy and getting killed, uh, it's there's a few shots of Bill, uh, Alice and Brenda playing Strip Monopoly. Yes. Um, first of all, Bill loses his uh, shoes. He has to get his feet out. Um, then Marcy... Oh, goes yeah, Marcy goes for a wee. I've got that right down next to it. We know. Um, Brenda rolls a quite clearly a two and a one, <laughs> and yet claims double sixes, and yeah. no one questions her. And it eventually um, ends up with Brenda in just her underwear. Uh, Alice, uh, well, Bill's got his top off. Alice is about to take her top off, and the door blows open, and. Uh, Brenda thinks, oh, it's time for me to go back to my cabin. I think I left the uh, windows open. So, you know, any normal person in a situation would put her clothes back on. She can't be in that much of a hurry. <laughs> yeah. Puts her clothes back on and then goes out. It's pouring down of rain really badly. Instead, she decides to just put a raincoat on over her underwear and leave no shoes on. Yeah, she must have had wild dirty feet. <laughs> And she's just in her underwear and a raincoat in the pouring rain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but she's about to get into bed. Her feet must yeah. have been filthy. Yeah, we soon find out she has no idea how to dress appropriately. No. Um, meanwhile, Marcy goes for her wee. Um, and uh, what does she uh, What does she say? 
Oh, she uh, so she's had a wee. She's gone out and uh, she's doing whatever in the mirror. I think she's brushing her hair or brushing her teeth or something. And she does what is a spot on Catherine Hepburn impression. <laughs> and she she says, uh, "Oh, something about Lizzie, you'll always be plain." And <laughs> uh, so it's just a quote from the Rainmaker, an old Catherine Hepburn film. It's such um, a random quote. What, what probably happened is that the filmmakers found out she did this, and it is a spot dead spot on Catherine Hepburn impression. And they probably found out she could do it, and they were like, "Hmm." Just do it. It's what <laughs> she does. Showcase your talents. She hears people moving around in the showers, and she goes up and she says, "Ollie Ollie Embry." <laughs> no, isn't it Ollie Ollie Embry? Yeah, Ollie Ollie Oxen. Yeah. I think that's what it's meant to be, but she says Ollie Ollie Embry. <laughs> Which apparently, I think this is an American thing. Is what you say when you play hide and seek. But then she decides it must all be her imagination. These noises she's hearing. Whilst we see an axe shadow in the background, then she turns around, the killer's holding an axe up to her, and instead of trying to run away, she just stands there and screams, <laughs> gets an axe to the face. She does. Oh. Oh, more great practical effects. Yeah. Very so what, detailed. From the making of documentary, Tom Savini turned around and said, well, what, what do you want? Do you want a real axe going into a fake head? Or do you want a fake axe going into a real head? Essentially. Mm-hmm. So what he did, and it's quite clever, is that the axe is the, the noise that the axe makes hitting the light. And then we see the light moving as if it's been hit gives us, you know, the feeling that this is a very heavy real axe. And then the shot, we don't actually see the axe going into to her face, but the axe is already there in her face. Yeah. Um, which is very clever. I mean, Tom's, we keep saying it, and I'll keep saying it. Um, Tom Savini is, a, a, you know, a genius when it comes to these things. He is. And speaking of genius, we get to hear Sail Away, Tiny Sparrow again. Yeah. It must have been number one at the time <laughs> in the uh, Friday the 13th universe. This yes. must have been number one with the bullet. It was actually the village people who wrote it. Um, and that's why it's included in the song. Oh, okay. In the film. Is it better than the Milkshake song? It, fuck you. Do not mention the Milkshake song. <laughs> anyway, yes, we get a diner, and the <laughs> the most fake rain I've ever seen in my life. It is, yeah, it is quite clearly <laughs> it looks like it's just someone been sprayed with a hose. Down. It is clearly someone with a hose <laughs> just going back and forth. Um, Steve's in there. Having a coffee. Is that where he went this entire time? Did you just go sit in the diner? Well, he'd gone into town, and then he's he's at the diner talking to Cla- Claudette. Uh, was it Claudette? No, that's from the start of the film, I think. Was it? Oh, I don't know. Either way, this one with big glasses. Um, she thinks she's got a chance. She wants a bit of that Steve dick. She's the only actually, woman that does want it. She is quite flirty, actually. She looks like... Uh, no, this is for British... Uh, audience, you know Kathy Burke in Gimme Gimme Gimme. Yeah, she looks like her. She does. Um, just Google it, but she does. She looks just like her. Well, Steve wants to know how he could pay for his coffee, and uh, she says, "Wow, you could pay me with a night out on the town." And he's like, "Ha ha, you're too old for me." <laughs> um, and then uh, he says, "Oh, I've got to get back. We have new counselors. There are some babes in the woods." Fuck off, Steve. Yeah. So creepy. Just go to this lovely 
diner worker, you know? But, um... She was meant to have a death scene as well. Oh, Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, there were photos of her sort of made up for, for a death scene. Oh, wow. So, she was meant to be killed, but she wasn't. Well, Steve makes his way back to, uh, to the camp. And then Brenda is in a nightdress now. Yeah, so she's ready for bed. She's got a, she's got a, a, a book ready. She's being watched. Mm-hmm. So she was kind of, I, I believe she was being watched when she was fini- uh, finishing off in the bathroom. She, yes. She'd gone to the, the bathroom. She was brushing her teeth, brushing her hair. And uh, this a slight hand over the shower curtain. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that? Yes. She's being watched. And then she goes back to her cabinet. She's being watched all the way. Um, from some point of view shots. Uh, yeah, so in one of the more creepy scenes of the film, we hear a child's voice um, saying, help me. Um, Brenda decides, you know what? I need to go and investigate. In my fucking nightdress, in the pouring rain. Yeah. Again, no shoes. What is wrong with her? Why can't she just dress properly? And yeah, this is like dressing gowns become see-through by the end, yeah. <laughs> So she goes out, um, she goes to the archery range, and she's like, hello. She gets, starts out really frustrated. Um, the lights come on in the archery range, and she's killed off screen. That child's voice that's screaming out, help me. I think it's meant to be Pamela. I think it is Pamela. Yeah. I, I do think that is Betsy Palmer doing that voice. Yeah, it does sound like her. Yeah, because I think it's quite similar to the voice she does for Jason. Well, Alice hears Brenda screaming. Her and Bill go to investigate. Um, and they find a bloody axe, which was obviously used to kill Marcy. And uh, instead of panicking, Alice goes really dramatic, and she's like, what is going on? In that exact voice. Um, Then all the cliches come in, the phone wires have been cut, the car won't start. Um, Steve has a chat with a cop, he gets picked up when his car breaks down. And then as Steve's coming back into the camp, he runs into our POV killer. And uh, we realise he actually knows who it is. He's like, oh, hi there. And he's like, uh, what are you doing in this mess? And, uh, yeah, he then gets I, killed. I think he gets stabbed in the stomach. I think so. Stomach. It's off screen. You don't see and yes, anything. He's killed and we all think Alice is safe now because the sexual predator's gone. Um, but, uh, yeah. Do we, we find- see his body later? Yes, we do. do yeah, he mean? flops down from a tree. Oh, he does, yeah. He flops down from a tree. Um, the generator dies. <laughs> Wait, how did fuck did Betsy Palmer get him up a tree? I know. <laughs> how did she throw a body through a window? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> she was super strength. Um, the generator dies. Alice is uh, on the sofa with her eyes closed, a blanket over her, having a sleep. And... Uh, <laughs> Bill's like, I'll go fix it. And while she's got her eyes closed and clearly not going anywhere, she's like, want me to come with you? Like, well, no, Alice, you're clearly not going to go anywhere. So she stays there and Bill goes to start it up. Again, off-screen kill. Um, it feels like a waste. It, it's, there's, there's a fair few sort of off-screen. Yeah, there's three, three off-screen when kills. When you actually see it, it's fantastic. Mm. But there are so many kills that are... No, there's even more than three. Because there's obviously the freeze frame at the start. Yes. Technically, Steve. Well, the, the the guy at the start is just sort of holding his stuff. Yeah. You don't, and I, I, I'm not a gore hound myself, necessarily. 
Um, but I'm not a huge fan of off-screen kills either. Unless you're really going to get a good reveal. And it's, I, I, it, well, Bill, Bill does reveal, get a good reveal. That is a yeah. good reveal. Um, so that is... I can forgive that one. Yeah. Um, but Screaming Girl at the beginning... <laughs> mm, it's an iconic shot, but... I don't know. Well, Alice senses something's up. She wakes up, screams Bill's name... And then she decides to make a coffee, and we get to see the entire process. She does, and she's making two coffees as well. Yeah. We get to see it all happen. Uh, and then she... Uh, it does go on a while. <laughs> got a big jar that just says coffee in massive letters on it, so we know what she's doing. And she puts... She's heating the kettle up on the stove. Um, and she puts the mugs on the stove as well. <laughs> like, really quite dangerously close to the, the, the heat and the fire. Yeah. I don't know. Shit like that annoys me. I'm sorry. Maybe that's, no, that's very, me. very noticeable. I believe they got a laugh in the cinema as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know why she just can't put them on the side. She <laughs> just put them generally really way too close to the flames. Well, she makes a coffee. She goes out to investigate and then she finds Bill, who has been arrowed to a door. Yeah. In a nod to Halloween, I'd say. Uh, yeah, yeah, probably. And he's got an arrow in the eye. Yes. And apparently, um, the makeup effect used for that was actually burning uh, Harry Crosby's eye. Oh, was that actually him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. shit, I thought it was a dummy. No, no, no. Um, you can actually see it twitching a little bit oh. because he's in genuinely quite a oh, lot wow. of pain. <laughs> and again, how the fuck did Betsy Palmer get him <laughs> up on that How many arrows, like Halloween... How is the knife holding him to the wall? And how yeah. is the arrows holding him to that door? Yeah. It doesn't make sense, but it's some great imagery. Is there... I, I don't... I don't... I'm not sure if there is. I haven't read anything, I don't think. Is there... Because Jason comes back, like, is it a year later? Like, yeah, grown, he's fully grown. Is there a, like, a theory that Jason oh, was do you helping know what? her all along? Yeah, it's weird because they can easily explain this away because obviously he was a child and was disfigured back in 1958, right? Yeah. Or 57. Mm-hmm. This film would be long enough after for him to be a grown man. Yeah. But then what happens at the end kind of contradicts that. That's the only thing that's like, okay, Jason could have been there the whole time helping her. Yeah. But if you would, th- yeah. But then he's a child at the end. Yeah, but that, isn't that... You could have said that that was just Alice's dream. So Alice Maybe. dreamed that there was yeah. the child yeah. at the bottom. It wasn't actually the child. It was real Jason pulled it, but then didn't kill her. Mm. Um, I I just... It, when it's revealed that Mrs. Voorhees, a woman who must have been in her late 60s, <laughs> yeah. is the killer, you're like, oh my God. But then, when you rewatch it, you're like, okay, how the fuck did she get Steve Christie up a tree? How did she get, you know, Harry... Is his name Bill? It's Bill, Bill isn't it? yeah. Bill up into the air so she could stick him to a fucking door with arrows. And then how does she do what she does in this next scene? Alice goes back to the cabin, uh, struggles to basically do everything. <laughs> yeah. Boards the door up with so many chairs... <laughs> she's, in survival. she's in survival um, and just when she thinks she's safe she lets out a little sigh and uh, sigh of relief and Brenda dead Brenda is thrown through the window 
Yes, she is, yeah. So, Paolo Forhees throws someone through a window. Throws somebody through a window. <laughs> Which was actually um, Tom Savini in a dress. And this is... Yeah, it was Tom Savini in a dress. <laughs> but this was a great um, jump scare, actually. It was. When jump scares are done right... Oh, this film's... Does the jump, jump scares scare so well. The are really well done. Yeah. Um, and I'm not... I'm not... I, I think jump scares can be a little cheap when they're done too often. The, the nowadays, I mean, well... I think we're getting out of that stage. Yeah. But for the last few five years or so, films have been based around jump scares. Yeah. People have made films solely to use jump scares. Yeah. Look at um, Curse of La Llorona that we watched this year. That film was made for fucking jump scares. That's yeah. all it was. And you get no tension. You don't You don't get any suspense. No. because Yeah, it just takes you out of it. Yeah. But then sometimes it's done right. You know. Oh, when it's done right, it's extremely effective. In this film, it's extremely effective. Yeah. It works. Yeah. But because... And it, it did feel like what she was... was trying to barricade the door for a very long time. Yeah. Um, but that adds to the that's what they Yeah, that's what they do in this film. They make you feel You're safe. Into a false sense of security. Yeah. What was the film we watched that was an older film and the jump scares actually got me? Tales from the Crypt. Oh, okay. The yeah, Tales from yeah. the Crypt film from the 1970s, a British version. We watched it last week, and honestly, the jump scares actually genuinely got me. And, uh, yeah, it's rare. When you see so many films with jump scares, it's rare that they get you. And this, this film as well, they, they still get you, no matter how many times you watch it, because you don't know when it's going to happen. Um, but, yeah, so Dead Brenda's thrown through the window. Uh, and then we are introduced to an old friend of the Christie's. <laughs> yes. Pamela Voorhees turns up, checkered hipster shirt on. Um, oh, God, yeah, and that <laughs> fucking jumper. With an uh, ugly blue jumper on over the top. Hideous jumper. Um, and, iconic. Uh, jumper, iconic jumper. But hideous, nonetheless. And uh, she tells uh, Alice, because Alice is like, who are you? And she's like... Well, I'm Mrs. Voorhees, an old friend of the Christie's. She's an old friend of the Christie's. Um, Alice tells her, yeah, everyone's dead. And she's like, well, what monster could have done this? And then Alice replies, Bill's out there. What, are you saying Bill's the monster? <laughs> a really weird dialogue exchange. How has Mrs. Voorhees not got any blood on her? <laughs> if she's been lifting people around, <laughs> she must have had a quick change. Well, I mean, earlier on, she did only have that um, flannel shirt on, didn't she? Yeah, when she true. held Kevin Bacon's head. Yeah. So she probably put the jumper on to cover that up. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, and then Pamela, good old Pam, gives a bit of uh, exposition into Jason's backstory. And we don't hear Jason's name until this point. It's an hour and 16 minutes into the film. Ah. And this is the first time we hear his name. Um, and she, you know, gives away a bit too much exposition to the point she gives away herself as the killer. She has a flashback of him drowning and uh, she explains that it was her son and uh, the reason all the killings were happening that day was because uh, A, it's his birthday and B, uh, she wanted to stop him from opening up a camp um, to avoid anything like this happening again. Which is kind of uh, <laughs> a good thing. What, I mean... Murdering innocent people? No, so but... That one person no, doesn't take away the murdering. Take away the murdering. She's just a caring mother. Well, these poor people that... <laughs> teenagers. Well, they're meant to be teenagers. <laughs> uh, they weren't even alive when he drowned. True, but she did kill a sexual predator. 
Steve. Steve Christine. She did kill Ned as well. Yeah, She's yeah. Done some good service. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so then, um, basically, after the big reveal happens, she starts talking to Jason, starts talking to herself, basically, in two voices, and a cat and mouse chase ensues. Yeah, this... This does go on quite a while. I mean, it's suspenseful. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah. Alice just... finds bodies on the way. She obviously finds Marcy and she finds Steve dangling from a tree. But it, it's a bit like they have a little tussle. Um, Alice hits her in the fanny with... Um... <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm getting to that she... bit. I'm getting to that bit. Before that, she uh, does a whole, kill her mummy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, that adds to her performance. She's genuinely a believable psychopath. I don't know how she got nominated for a Razzie. Yeah, I think I think probably because they tend to. It was probably a big deal at the time that Betsy Palmer was playing this character. Mm. I don't think she does a terrible job. No, um, a little hammy, yes, but it works for a film like this. Um, so I I think really because the story was Betsy Palmer, you know, does a horror film where people are, gets her head cut off at the end. I think just for, uh, you know, a bit of attention, they gave her the, the Razzie nomination. Yeah. It's prob- in fairness, it's probably why they did it with The Shining as well. Um, oh, yeah, definitely. Just just to be trolls, really. Yeah. Well, uh, they go into another cabin, uh, no, a kitchen, sorry, and Alice starts throwing random objects at Pamela. Um, she gets slapped <laughs> for it. She, she gets some fierce slaps, some of which are actually real. Um, because <laughs> obviously uh, Betsy Palmer hasn't done many slaps on screen before, so she thought she had to actually slap her. Well, Betsy Palmer was a stage performer, yeah. so on stage they did real slaps. Um, so Sean S. Cunningham went to be like, yeah, no, stop the, slapping Alice, please. The story please. was Adrian King, she got a real <laughs> slap, and she was like, oh my God, Sean, she actually just slapped me. <laughs> oh, is that not how you do it? Like, no, no, in movies we just no, we please stop. Sound afterwards. <laughs> yeah, please stop slapping Adrian King. Yeah. <laughs> so um, then she um, gets, as Chris mentioned, she gets a shotgun to the fanny, and then to the face after, um, and then uh, oh, for our American audiences, fanny means vagina. Yes. Not a bum. Um. <laughs> uh, so Alice goes and hides in. Uh, in a cupboard where Ralph was earlier on. Oh, yeah. And then I have wrote down 1980, the year for breaking doors and sticking your head through. Because much like The Shining, Pamela Voorhees breaks down the part of the door and then sticks her head through. Gives her a nice smile. She's very white teeth, doesn't she, Betsy Palmer? Yeah, she she has a lot of teeth, I noticed. Yeah? Sorry. She has a lot of teeth. Just a lot. Good for her. Yeah, good for her. Yeah. I mean, it might have been fake. If they were, if they were all around, good for her. Yeah. So, um... <laughs> Pamela gets a frying pan to the face yes. and uh, gets knocked unconscious. So you think that's it, you know, Alice is going to get away. She walks down to uh, a boat, a rowing boat, and just sits around. But then, Pam comes back for one last scare. But um, she soon regrets it, because in the most... Extreme reaction. <laughs> she gets the machete knocked out of her hand um, that she's running around with, and instead of just stabbing her, 
Alice fucking decapitates her. Yeah. It's so extreme. She swings the machete and cuts her head off. Yeah, and then she raises her manly hands up. She does. This is a great scene, though. <laughs> this, this ending scene, in, um, from the moment that it's revealed that uh, Mrs. Voorhees is the killer until the moment she's decapitated is pure camp. Yeah. I, I think. It is, it is. It's, it's high melodrama. And it it's a little repetitive. It's all a bit like um, Pamela chases her. She ends up getting smacked with some object. Alice <laughs> runs away. She catches up with her. She gives her a smack with another object that she's found lying around. She runs away. So, but it, it's high camp and it's it's great and it, it's it quite funny really. Um, now, uh, and then that to end on that decapitation as the. The height of melodrama. Oh, hell fantastic. Yeah. And then we uh, transition to daytime and a beautiful, dramatic version of Sail Away Tiny Sparrow <laughs> is playing. <laughs> I because, like that song. Because why else? Whatever song would you use? <laughs> um, no lyrics in this version, no. It is genuinely the sad, instrumental, organ filled version it of is. Sail Away Tiny Sparrow. It's- um, Alice uh, is in a boat, uh, their own boat that she was resting near. Um, the police turn up, start calling her up, waking her up, and uh, she's putting her hand through the water. I have a great time. Why, why is she on a, in the canoe? Why is she in the boat? Um, yeah. No, why did she just go back to she could have, Yeah, she could have just if she was escaped. Gonna sleep somewhere, if, if she was going to sleep until, you know. Although, um,. Pamela Voorhees, her car was still working, wasn't it? It was. She could have just got away in that. But then we wouldn't have got this amazing scene. Well, would, uh, yeah, we wouldn't have, but I, I don't understand why she... She's cut her fucking head off. Yeah. She ain't coming back from that. Well, she uh, she's in this boat, putting her hand through the water, having a great time. And then, out of nowhere, and I remember when I first watched this, it fucking really got me oh this this is I almost jumped off my sofa this is up there with the best jump scares yeah it's inspired by the jump scare from the end of Carrie oh yeah which um, which I think is probably the best jump scare of all time yeah and unlike Carrie you I don't I don't think that's as effective now because you, the noise that you get with it isn't as uh, with a jump scare you gotta have a loud noise that really gets shit oh of course that's very important mm-hmm. it isn't that loud with Carrie um, I find it got me when I first watched it, but now that doesn't really get me. This gets me every single time. You can't pinpoint when it's going to happen. Um, Jason Voorhees, boom, fucking jumps out of the water. First sighting of him out of the franchise, played by a gentleman by the name of Ari Lehman, who fucking lives on the success of this. He's milked it a lot. He has milked the fuck out of this. He's in the documentary saying how he means a lot to people. Dude, no you fucking don't. You played Jason Voorhees for 10 seconds. <laughs> it wasn't even originally meant to be you. It was going to be Sean Cunningham's son, but his wife wouldn't let him do it. Get the fuck over it. Seriously? <laughs> like, he really thinks he is the penultimate Jason. Mate, no. No. You ain't here for 10 seconds. Yes, you looked fucking terrifying, but calm the fuck down. <laughs> So, Alice wakes up um, in a hospital screaming. She's told by the cop uh, who picked Steve up earlier in the film that uh, all of her friends are dead. 
Um, and she asked me, what about the boy that uh, was in the lake? And he's like, well, we didn't find no boy. And then what does she say? Then he's still out there. Yeah. Uh, we get a little ripple in the water. Yeah. And uh, again, we get the sad players out of the film. We get Sail Away, Tiny Sparrow, emotional remix. Yeah. At the end of the film. It's like it's like EastEnders when someone dies. Yes. And you get the sad version of well, the EastEnders film. I mean, the slapping in this film was like EastEnders. It was. <laughs> Um, yeah, and that's, that's Friday the 13th. And that is Friday the 13th. Iconic slasher film. The iconic slasher film. Um, the highly influential slasher film. Um, the film that spawned how many fucking sequels? Spawned ten sequels. Ten sequels. Oh, hang on, no. Eleven sequels. Well, Jason X. Ten, ten se- No, Freddy versus Jason. Freddy Eleven vs. sequels and a remake. And a anthology TV series. Yeah, that had absolutely nothing to do with Jason. Although that's meant to be quite good, though, isn't it? It's meant to be TV good. TV series, yeah. uh, two video games. Comic books. Fucking everything. A lot of real life drama at the moment over who owns the rights. Oh. God, yeah. Didn't Le- LeBron James... LeBron James wanted to make a Friday the 13th film. Yeah, apparently he's it's, a huge fan of the series. Its impact on pop culture is insane. Oh, it's huge. And huge. obviously, you know, as we said, it goes on to spawn Jason Voorhees in his hockey mask, which is one of the big three. Um, obviously, Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees. They are the three slasher villains that, you know, everyone associates with the horror genre. You mention horror and slash to anyone they're going to mention one of those three and for the, for this really the whole franchise to spawn from what was a small just over half a million dollar film mm-hmm. that wasn't meant to be it was never meant to be about jason jason was just a jump scare at the yeah. end um it was never meant to go anywhere or, or really do anything and, yeah um it's you know, crazy how these things happen. It is. And, you know, it, it's crazy to think of the slasher genre without this film now. Um, yeah, no, it's it's great. It's a very good film. I You know, I gave it a 9 out of 10. Um, yeah, I gave it an 8. Just because, I mean, obviously there is the aspects that we picked it apart. But like I said uh, when we announced this on the Demon Wind episode, it's a perfect blend, this film. It's... A great film, but it's also the elements that you can pick apart as, as well, you know, that have aged. So it's it's been great to talk about because there's so much to talk about. Whereas, I mean, something like Silence of the Lambs, we only had good things to say. Yeah. You know, there was, there was never that, we never had anything bad to say about it. This is that good balance in the middle. Um, but then something like Silence of the Lambs was sort of rife for ripe excuse me for interpretation oh yeah absolutely you know it had a lot of themes whereas i don't think friday the 13th necessarily it doesn't go that in depth about although it's got a great story to it you know the making of it's you know yeah and that's the thing that's where the balance comes out in this yeah Um, there's obviously you've got all the amazing backstory and uh then the bits in the film that you can pick apart yeah but yeah no that's uh friday the 13th and i believe uh, if you want to check your calendar, mm-hmm. I don't think we've got another Friday the 13th until March. Until March next year? Uh, March 2020, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just doing some research whilst recording because we're professional. 
<laughs> so this obviously today, Friday, yeah. December the thirteenth, and then next is March, uh, twenty twenty. Yeah. Yes. So March thirteenth, twenty twenty, we will be talking about Friday the thirteenth, part two. Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, and then November 2020... We're talking about part three. Part three. Yeah. And then it's August 2021. Yeah. May 2022. January 2023. Oh. And October 2023. So, yeah. Yeah, we're not going to be finished till about 2026. And yeah, that's dependent so if any more films are released by then. Oh, God. Hopefully they are. I want to see more films. Hopefully the new LeBron James one will... Uh, maybe come out hopefully well, it can't be worse than Jason Takes Manhattan <laughs> Jason Goes to Hell um, <laughs> um, yeah but that's Friday the 13th next week on Tuesday because obviously um, next week on Thursday is the release of Star Wars Rise of Skywalker to tie in with the occasion and start our Christmas films we're talking about we will be talking about Star Wars the holiday special. <sighs> Just when we were talking about good films. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't really know what to say. It's a fucking mess, but there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. This is a film that even George Lucas tried to bury, and he's responsible for Jar Jar Binks and the special <laughs> editions. The- so, <laughs> so, take from that what you will. The embarrassing... Star Wars holidays. If you want to put yourself through it by Tuesday, because um, we're going to spoil it for you, then it's on YouTube in full. It does go on for about two hours. There is an entire sequence of Wookiees talking about subtitles. Uh, but there is a B. Arthur. There is a B. Arthur musical sequence. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to say anymore. We'll save no, it for the episode. But if, if I needed to sell it to you, B. Arthur's in it. So watch it and listen to us discuss it. Yeah. So it's not spoiled for you. So, um, you can find us on social media, Horror Court Trash over on Instagram and Facebook, Horror Court Trash on Twitter. Uh, if you're listening on iTunes, rate, review and subscribe, like and follow on anything else. I am Gaz 92 on Letterboxd, GazCruz92 on Twitter and Gazmo205 on Instagram. I am ChrisBarker823 on Twitter, Instagram and Letterboxd. And, uh, yeah, so until Tuesday, stay away from uh, pervy camp counsellors. Stay away from old ladies in blue jumpers. Yeah. And uh, sail and away. don't have your mugs too close to your uh, kettles. No, no, sail away, tiny sparrow. Go and have a listen to it. <laughs> See you on Tuesday. Bye. <laughs>